you cannot harass and force people into paying you money that they don't have. Look, I don't know what collection needed to look like 50 years ago. I know what it needed to look like 10 years ago and what it needs to look like today. People want to feel in control. People want to feel a change in their life. People want to feel like they can be proud of their redemption arc of their story. And for us, that's what we want to give them. There's a narrative around things blowing up when binopulator thought its delinquencies go up. People are like, oh, binopulator is done. Binopulator is not done. It's just a higher turnover product that sees the delinquency comes faster than a product like credit card where people max out their balance and then they take 180 days to charge off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. You can also drop me a line on Twitter, or LinkedIn. In this episode, I sit down with Ohad Samet, CEO and co-founder of TrueML, a leading platform of fintech products to enable intelligent digital customer communication, which includes TrueAccord, a leading debt recovery and collections platform with a consumer-friendly digital experience. They are backed by Amex, Arbor Ventures, Box Group, Felicis, Homebrew, Nika, Max Lefchin, and many more. Ohad is also an industry veteran and previously held leadership roles at PayPal and Klarna. In this episode, we discuss lessons learned at PayPal and Klarna, what drives the success of these organizations, how True Accord has pioneered a humane customer service approach to debt collection, the state of buy now, pay later, and why Ohad thinks the category is here to stay and he hopes it displaces payday loans, advice on managing your relationship with VCs, and a lot more. What's going on, Ohad? How are you today? Where are you joining from? I am joining from Stockholm, Sweden, where it's uh, dark starting 3 p.m. now. So it's pretty depressing from that perspective. But otherwise, a very nice city. I spent some time as a very little kid living in Moscow, and I would complain that I would go to school at night and come back home at night. There are like four hours of sunlight. <laughs> so right, we're going to talk about all things fintech, but I want to start. I've heard that you do martial arts and you're quite good at that. Has that been a thing of your whole life? Why do you do martial arts? Why? I don't know. Why do we do anything? I was attracted to martial arts as a teenager. I started in my late teens, trained for more than a decade and a few things in Israel. Kind of fell off when I moved to the Bay Area and just didn't find something that works for me. And then we'll get to it. But like 
Analyze got acquired by Klarna. I started working on a bunch of stuff, started traveling a lot, started true ML. I mean, never was the time. And then suddenly post COVID, didn't need to travel as much. Wanted to get back into something I've always wanted to. And I found a place that clicked, a place where people try to kill you, but not injure you. You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a very, it's high intensity, but it is very injury aware. It is very, uh, like folks in their thirties and forties who want to have fun, but can leave a little bit of the ego out. And we just, we go after each other pretty ferociously every day of the week, but we do it while keeping each other safe. So that's very good. And I'm just happy to be back on the, on the match. I think it's fun. Is that how you start your day? Do you do it in the morning? Yeah. I wake up. My wife does the drop-off. I go, I train, come back, do the pickup, make dinner, and then start my calls every day of the week. That's the routine until late evening, early night. So this reminds me, I just went to the Valor Capital Summit here in New York, and one of the speakers was Dan Schulman, ex-CEO of PayPal. You know, he also starts his day that way. Martial arts every morning, which I thought was super interesting. Well, I mean, he does martial arts. My CTO does martial arts. The president of Hatch Bank, Jer, is purple or, or brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is very serious. His wife trains as well. So, yeah, it's well, more of us nerds uh, train martial arts than you'd expect. <laughs> so, Ohad, take us through your background, and we're going to zoom in on some areas of what you've done in fintech. But you've been in the industry for longer than most, I would say. But how did you get into fintech in the first place? I, last year of university, was looking for a job, and we have standardized tests in Israel, kind of like the SATs. I scored well on those, and there was this company that was looking for people who scored well, and not necessarily with any background, thankfully, in technology. And this was in 2005, so when, before data science was called data science, and when training a model on 40,000 samples would take 24 hours on your proprietary hardware. And at the time, they just they hired people to become subject matter experts in their area in order to help them train the machines later. And that company was called NPX. And by the time we were acquired by PayPal, we were called Fraud Sciences. And I was running the analytics team and operations for a while. So blind luck. And then as much hard work as I could fit into my schedule. So uh, it's funny you bring up fraud sciences. I've had a few guests talk about it before. One of those, pretty sure it was Matan Bar from Milio. And as I understand it, fraud sciences established some practices in anti-fraud fighting that are now widely used throughout the industry, right? What do you think was so special about the company? Number one, it was early. It was PayPal's first ever acquisition. It was a successful result. Now we may laugh at $169 million in acquisition price, but back then it was a huge slam dunk, especially in terms of VC returns. It really had a unique approach to fraud prevention that focused not on prevention, but on enablement, meaning using signals to identify positive behavior rather than negative behavior and capture people based on that. So that was a novel approach. And finally, and I was lucky to be part of that group, 
it built this train a subject matter expert from scratch, teach them how to do the thing, then automate based on their subject matter expertise. So SME-based machine learning is something that is still rather unique in areas where you don't have a lot of data or the performance, like what you're trying to predict is not easily definable. So it was a very good on-ramp for a lot of talented young people who did not fit into the developer engineer mold. So in a way, it was a proto data scientist that the company invented. And beyond that, we were very lucky. And we can talk about that, but I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but we ended up being a, a strong driving force within PayPal. Essentially, I don't know if it's still the case, but for several years, the folks from there were running the risk organization for PayPal. So that drives another change in culture. So you get how everything flows from that. Yeah. And is that where you got also the entrepreneurial bug to go and start to build something later on? Yeah. I only only ran across uh, René Giraud and Nimetic uh, Desire later. But earlier in my life, I would always have someone who is relatively close to me who would look at and say, oh, I want to do that. And it was true even before so. But then when we got acquired by PayPal, first I said, wow, I want to learn what an American corporation works like. And that was a really amazing learning experience. And then they brought us to the Bay Area. And I was like, oh, crap, these are my people. I need to come here. And then I met several people. And I was like, wow, they're starting companies. They're learning. I could maybe redo the thing that we did for sciences, but for other stuff. So yeah, it was somewhat an extrapolation. And to a large extent, just meeting people who were super inspirational and wanted to be like them. And so what was your first foray into when I left PayPal in 2010, I actually wanted to build a detection system for fake identities, which at the time was not a big problem as it is today, or even as, as much as five years ago. That was, what, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And then I started working on it. And the idea was that on the side, I would work on something in the fraud prevention, credit underwriting environment with my brother. And one became Signified, that is still running. I started very early, brought Raj in, Raj brought Michael in, we worked together at PayPal. And when I left very early on and, and left them the majority of the equity and so on, they took it in, in their direction and have been doing an incredible job since. Analyze, which was the company that I worked on with my brother, was acquired by Klarna very, very early on. And then we went on to become part of the leadership team at Klarna. So hard work, good timing, a lot of luck, worked out. What do you think makes Klarna what it is today? Because valuation aside, as a business, there's no denying that it's been successful. It's tapped into a consumer in a way that few companies do, right? It's built a, a strong brand for itself. Tell us about th those learnings at Clark, because you were the chief risk officer there. Yes. I was there very early on, relatively. I think the company was about 100, 200 people. I grew quite a lot when I was there. It was We did our first unicorn round, which was a wild ride. Just tremendous growth and like learning, trying to keep up with everything and sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding was incredible. I think 
in order to be successful, you need to be good enough and then you need to be very lucky. But I would also say having the incredible benefit of being exposed to some extent to two leaders in Binopulator, Max Levchin and Sebastian Simitkovsky. I think at the end of the day, if there isn't an incredible engine in the form of the founder or co-founder and CEO, this just wills it, wills stuff into existence. Things just don't happen. And they're very different people, very different temperaments, very different styles, very different in so many ways. But when they set on something, when they're like, this is going to happen, that thing happens. And I've been asked when Ben Pinopelator fell out of favor and it was very trendy to knock it down. I was asked, what do you think is going to happen to Klarna and Affirm? And they said, I don't know, but I would not bet against any of these guys. They are forces of nature and very different forces in nature, but they just make things happen. And I think that is the one thing that separates successful companies from unsuccessful companies. Beyond the luck, beyond all that, the, the right idea and execution, it's just someone who just cannot fail, will not fail. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm guessing that's also the mentality that you have to bring every day to true ML. So let's talk about that. Tell us about TrueML, everything that you guys are doing now, but also the evolution of the company and where you first identified that there was a need for this. And so when I worked as Chief Risk Officer at Klarna, when you work in fraud prevention, a lot of what you do is about detecting fraud in real time and stopping it. But when you work in credit underwriting, there's a pretty sizable piece of the work that is servicing the obligation after it's been made. Right, so if the consumer is intending to pay, but something happens, servicing, reminding them, making it easier, connecting with them and so on, understanding what's happening in their lives, I just realized it was important and that it was not getting the amount of attention that I would like it to get from vendors, from the ecosystem in general. I've heard, I've gotten coaching that nobody knows why one collection agent's is better than the other. Just hire them. You fire the bottom 50% every quarter and you let the best ones flow to the top. This is verbatim what I've been told as advice. And when I hear something like that with my background in, in like becoming a subject matter expert and then teaching a machine how to do my job to a large extent, my spidey sense starts to tingle. I was like, okay, underserved problem, large market, low NPS, nobody wants to invest in it, and very smart people don't understand how it works, there's something here. And at that time, I didn't have a financial goal in mind. I didn't start my professional life saying, oh, I need to have this amount of money in the bank. And so after what we did with fraud sciences and then with analyzed, I just felt like it's time to do something for me that could be a venture-funded company. And then if it succeeds, is going to have tremendous disruption with the capital Ds, actually going to change something. And that's why I, I leaned into it very hard and I knew it was going to be a long journey. And happy to say we were significantly more successful than unsuccessful. And we've made a bunch of changes and we will continue to make changes. What's your core product right now? So TrueML offers two products. One 
is called Retain. Retain is a SaaS product that if you are a creditor, a lender, or any other company that's owed money, and you have a servicing team, and you realize that you need to digitize the whole experience, and you cannot continue to scale that servicing team, and you need a system that orchestrates, delivers, negotiates, and does all of the digital, everything as automated as possible to turn your servicing team into an inbound customer care team that only handles complex cases, you buy Retain. And Retain plugs on top of your system. It's not a system of record. It just plugs on top of your system of record, and then it starts handling all that stuff. And it's a SaaS product. It's volume-based and so on. And then our older product, the one that we started from because we first needed to prove that this thing works, is Recover, which is the product that we sell under the True Accord brand. And that is a fully branded solution that competes with collection agencies. So at a point where you would go to a collection agency and say, hey, Joe Smith owes me X dollars, you try to recover, True Accord Recover comes in, handles the debt, that is a system record, the ledger and so on. You give the accounts, True Accord handles it and charges a certain percentage of the dollars that it collects, that it convinces the consumer to pay. And the beautiful thing about, well, all of it, beyond the technology is that it is focused, it is thinking like a sales and marketing campaign. It is selling the consumer on the idea of having agency, of having control, of paying down their debt because they want to. And therefore, it gets a lot more engagement from engaged consumers who are willing to actually do something about it. And of course, it also gets opt-outs from consumers who are not willing to do it. But even the opt-outs are easier because you cannot harass and force people into paying you money that they don't have. So that's the beauty of those products. So it's a very different approach from what people have been used to when it comes to collection agencies for centuries, if not millennia. I'm actually reading a book. It's about the history of interest rates. And for a long time, lenders were absolutely hated because of the reputation they had, they had to collect at some point. So no baseball bats from True Accord, right? Yeah. Look, I don't know what collection needed to look like 50 years ago. I know what it needed to look like 10 years ago and what it needs to look like today. Nobody answers their phone. People don't understand all the legal disclaimers that, that should be added and are added in our communication. People want to feel in control. People want to feel a change in their life. People want to feel like they can be proud of their redemption arc of their story. And for us, that's what we want to give them. We want to give them that feeling because, you know, when we were acquired by PayPal, PayPal was still owned by eBay. And they came and they gave us a very corporate America orientation about the values of eBay. And one of the values that we scoffed at the most because we were grizzled fraud prevention people was people are basically good. And you know what? People are basically good. People are basically good. People want to pay. People want to feel responsible. People want to feel that you understand them. And if you create that environment, this is not hippie, hand wavy stuff. This is literal. They pay more. They pay more. They give you great reviews. They ask you to help them with other financial instruments. It's just, it's a positively reinforcing cycle. Did that surprise you? No. What did surprise me is that there is a segment of people who need to be talked to a little bit more 
I wouldn't say sternly, but they need that very, they need a little bit of legalese and they need a little bit of, therefore you owe this, you know, it's like they need that very authoritative voice in order to at least kickstart the process. That surprised me a little bit, but honestly, it shouldn't have. And in this economy right now where we've seen personal credit defaults tick up a little bit, not maybe to significant numbers, but still not what it was a year or two ago. How is that translating into your business model, into the activity of the company? We've been saying for a long time, and we're on the record with research and myself and interviews and so on, that we are not walking around saying the sky is falling. We didn't use the word soft landing, but we expected a normalization of the credit market. We did not expect something to blow up. There's a narrative around things blowing up. When buy now, pay later, thought it's the linguistics go up. People are like, oh, buy now, pay later is done. Buy now, pay later is not done. It's just a higher turnover product that sees the delinquency comes faster than a product like credit card where people max out their balance and then they take 180 days to charge off. So buy now, pay later fixed it. Now we're seeing it in auto and in, in cars. I think we're just seeing a normalization. But that normalization can be two times, three times as much as we've seen in the pandemic days. So for some folks, it could look like the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's a normalization of the market. And we can talk about whether we want consumers to be as levered as they need to be. We can talk about minimum wages and how they translate into people looking for credit or not. But that's not policy that I feel like we can influence. What we can influence is the pop that we have. The federal policy, in some cases, the state policy around what happens when people fall behind and how we treat them. And the fact of the matter is, we are going to have, and do have, and we're going to have more people falling behind and needing help. And that's what we're here for. And you talked a little bit about buy now, pay later. Sounds like you think BMPL is here to stay, right? Where do you see it evolving? Is it just going to become a bigger and bigger competitor to credit cards? Or where do you see the BNPL's place in the future? I think the term BNPL is badly defined. I think there's a lot of POS lending that is mixed in with BNPL. I would rather refer to BNPL as only pay by four. And so, so very short-term kind of float type credit that is aimed at predominantly reducing friction and increasing basket size and, and making easier shopping decisions. I think that product is here to stay. I think it is and should be distinct from those larger loans that are basically POS financing, which is also here to stay. But I hope it's displacing payday loans. I hope it's displacing that type of products. I don't think it's going to displace credit cards in a meaningful way. And I have two reasons to think that. One, because of credit card utilization rates that we're seeing going up in the balances. And two, because of the product roadmap of both Affirm and Klarna and others, right, that are taking them into the card world. You can debate what that credit product is that's underlying that, but it is not pay by four, right? It's a little bit different. So people need a credit line. People need the variety of or are asking for a variety of credit products, I hope, and I don't even care if Payway 4 is a loss leader. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. I don't even care if it's a loss leader for other products as long as it maybe displaces stuff like paid-in loans and loans that are very high APR. 
hopefully that's what's happening. And speaking of payday loans, are there types of customers that you just won't work with? If it's legal. So my approach has always been, if it's legal in the, in states where we operate, I would rather work with consumers because when you think about it, if in some state you can use a payday loan and your choice is either defaulting or going into refinancing, getting into a debt trap, and I actually give you better terms when defaulting, and that becomes a well-known thing. But because we do such a good job, the lender wants to work with us and the consumer wants to work with us. I think we're making a difference, a positive difference. Having said that, there are some areas where I haven't wrapped my head around the complexity. For example, non-elective healthcare procedures. We are not in healthcare. And I got to tell you, I have not for myself solved the conundrum of how to think about collecting for non-elective in the US. That is a really complex ethical problem. And we're still grappling with it. And we are not in health. I mean, we work in some healthcare financing for elective procedures, but we are not doing anything in, in non-elective. And that's going to be a big head scratcher for us. We're, we're still talking about it. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And how about working with fintechs versus banks or incumbents? I'm guessing you took the approach of starting to work with fintechs and then try to get larger and larger customers. What are the differences that you've observed working with one or another? Most of my clients are not fintech companies for two reasons. Number one, a lot of fintech companies want to build everything in-house, which, by the way, many have changed their minds in, in past months, especially on the retain uh, product. And can't share, but some very nice uh, brands are using us. But the other element is that there is a there's a little bit of denial. There's a complexity in how fintech companies treat debt between not being big enough to have a lot of charge-offs and kind of thinking of it as, or trying to think of it as cost of doing business and not wanting to do anything, not, not wanting to feel bad about it. So not even asking for their money back when they're not being paid. We've just found them less receptive to, hey, you need to do this. Oddly, many times we get people calling after their board meeting, when they've been dressed down by the board and like, you need to reduce losses or you need to cut expenses. And like, I want to sell the debt and I want these people to pay me tomorrow and so on. And like, hold on, hold on. There's a way to do this that is good for the consumers as well. And I always try to say, let's think about this in advance. Even if it's, even if it's small, right? Let's create this relationship so that when it becomes big, we've actually had a working relationship and we can actually help those consumers. So yeah, the majority of the debt sits with banks, with telcos, with finance companies, with, again, going back to with healthcare companies. And that's where we're going. That's where our latest acquisition from last year was a competitor in the telco space that allowed us to fork over their clients and really get a beachhead in telco. So that's where we're going. Otto, we haven't talked too much about the structure internally at the company. I'm guessing you've brought learnings both from PayPal, Klarna, and, and the other companies you worked at. How does the magic happen, right? How have you structured the teams to build an efficient company? You know, like any other company, we're in flux and really thinking kind of where we're investing and not investing. But generally speaking, we have two businesses that are actual companies with actual CEOs that are 
our subsidiaries, Trumel Products makes retain, Trucord Corp makes recover and services it. And Trumel has a shared engineering service and so on. So we have those different functions and these are separated. They're different entities. They're regulated differently, as you can imagine. I mean, the SaaS product, even in debt collection space, is not the same as a fully licensed collection agency. And I've been very lucky going back to founders and how we do stuff. When we started, we got a lot of no's. Nobody wanted to work in debt collection. And then we worked with very smart people, but very inexperienced. And then we worked with people who were a little bit from the industry and so on. And the last few years, one, we've elevated several people, but also we've been lucky enough to attract people with the caliber uh, that we needed to actually run those businesses individually, run those the tech organization and so on. And so it, it's always an iterative process to attract talent and then structure the organization so that the talent could deliver. I'm curious, why why Sweden? I think it's a formal term here. I'm a prisoner of love. I met my wife and she's Swedish. She and my kids are not U.S. citizens. And, you know, through the evolution, through COVID, through all that stuff, we ended up being here and then building a life here and young kids need routine. And I used to live on airplanes, literally, like every other week, an inter-transatlantic flight to the U.S., and post-COVID, with us working remote and having more executives that are senior can run different aspects of the business. I don't need to do it as much. You know, I grew up in Israel, and I'm a proud American citizen. I've lived in the U.S. for 10 years. And if I spend too much time thinking about how quiet and privileged life is here, even for the average Swede, compared to where I grew up and where I've spent a lot of my life, I will lose my mind. It is just insane. And a good gig if you can get it. What can I say? So I'm happy for my kids and I'm sticking around and we'll see how it evolves. But frankly, for me personally, the Bay Area has always been the number one attraction, the the number one place in the world for sure. How about international expansion for TrueML, especially now that you live outside of the US? Yeah. Look, the opportunity in the US is still enormous. The changes that we lobbied for and helped bring about in, in Regulation F that changed the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and is basically beating the industry into submission into using digital and frankly killing a lot of companies that are not willing to make the change, which is good. It is a good thing. It is just continuing to expose opportunities for us in a $15 billion market. Having said that, yeah, I mean, we looked at multiple countries that are interesting. But it's hard to pull the trigger when you see such an opportunity continuously, continues to grow and present itself in the US. But yeah, definitely multiple countries where we could go and make a difference. And I could talk at length about the very weird death collection and credit market in Germany, in the UK, Japan, Australia, Brazil. I mean, there's so much for sure. Which was the strange is the weirdest one that comes to mind? The most counterintuitive one in terms of a regulated market that works not as you'd expect is Germany, where if you forgot to pay, say, $20 to your gym, you could be on the hook for 100, 200 euros of court fees and stuff like that that are just tacked on and then you become responsible for. And so there are companies making a billion dollar, a billion euros a year here, basically 
with like paper mills sending demand letters to consumers, charging nothing from the lender and just tacking on more and more fees. Now it's changed last year a little bit with regulation, as you can see, I've, I've researched the market, but it's not gone away. So it's like a mind-blowing thing that people don't realize about Germany. So those companies are not really collecting the loan, they're collecting the fees that they're adding on top of that. Exactly. So they're just adding like high margin fees on top of it. And it's an extremely profitable business model that has to be eradicated, frankly. That's crazy. Before I let you go, I know that you're not afraid to voice your opinion. You've worked with VCs, good and bad. What's your take on the VC industry in general? My take is that the problem starts when founders and others expect VCs to be what they're not. And I think that in the boom years of COVID and before, some junior people in the VC industry were also confused about what it was. I think there was a huge party. People were having fun. People were feeling like they were friends. People were forgetting that their interests are not always aligned. People were forgetting that one is a money manager whose job is to get growth and to raise another fund, and the other only has one business that may or may not succeed. People have always also forgot about firing people and controlling costs. Like we forgot about a bunch of the stuff. And I think that when we forget about it and we start thinking that, you know, the VC associate is my friend and we have drinks and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly that dynamic changes, there's a lot of heartbreak. For me, I love working with Ray Tonsing from Caffeinated. I love working with Melissa Guzzi from Arbor. I love working with several other people. That does not mean that I think they're my best friends. That does not mean that I think they're default going to give me money. That does not mean that I don't have very strong arguments with them. I'm Israeli. I love to argue, right? And thankfully, they will oblige me every once in a while. But we have a very functional relationship. It's a very highly functioning relationship. And it's because we don't expect one another to be more than who we are, right? And over time, we IPO the company, where we make a lot of money together, we, you know, over a decade or two and more, we'll be best friends maybe or not, but we're first and foremost united around this business and making it successful. And I think that's the key to success. And I would say, just if you're a founder, just realize what's happening. I don't think it is a bad thing. I don't think it takes away from anyone. I don't even think it's a knock on VCs to say, this is their job. This is your job, Right. Same thing is like, oh, the founders embellish the truth. You know, I used to say to tell people, this is our revenue. And they would ask me, that's your revenue, right? Not the money that you're collecting. And I was like, who the hell would present the money they're collecting as revenue? Well, apparently founders do that, right? So there's like, there's a both side thing here. GMV is not a revenue. <laughs> exactly. GMV is not revenue, right? So, I mean, you wouldn't have the saying if people were not trying to attribute GMV as revenue, right? So nobody's perfect here. We just need to understand what their roles are and have a healthy relationship and be adults about it. And then everything's going to be fine. I think more founders need to hear that. Amazing podcast. Thanks uh, for doing this. I'm so glad we did. And I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. This is awesome. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Ohad, CEO of TrueML. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line or Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>